Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I drank my first pint with my father on the day before I emigrated to New York. He used to say I was too sensible to drink, and I thought he drank himself senseless. We didn't always get on. I used to get embarrassed by his drinking. However, he told me he'd stand me a pint, as it might be a while before I buy another one. While it would be our first drink together, I had a premonition it might also be our last. We went to Cooney's, the main guard, one of his many locals. While there, the proprietor, in a most comical way, slapped my father's face because of a disagreement over the song The Galty Mountain Boy. Cooney's pub was once a 17th century courthouse, sitting imposingly on the top of O'Connell Street in Clonmel, but now beginning to look all its 400 years. It had a pale green timber front, badly in need of a lick of paint. The inside was dark, the only light coming in from the almost opaque windows facing O'Connell Street. It had a mix of accoutrements hung from the ceiling and walls, old muskets and cannonballs from when Cromwell laid siege to the town blended with smoky black-and-white photographs of everyone from Dan Breen to JFK. Behind the bar was a picture of the 1959 Waterford All-Ireland winning hurling team, a permanent fixture in every house in County Waterford. Cooney's was a Waterford pub in a Tipperary town, and my father was a Dacia exile. He felt behind enemy lines in Clonmel and raised his pint to the men of 59 and suggested I do the same. A scattering of old men nursed pints and smoked untipped cigarettes. These were men from the Nair and the Cumras, just like him, and despite my apprehension, I felt very much at home amongst them. John Ahern, the proprietor, was a small, wiry man of about 65 years old. He had a slight stoop and a tuft of white curls at the back of a balding head. He wore a grey polyester shop coat, but underneath he looked dressed for mass. He was also a man of the hill, and he gave us a great welcome. My father paraded me like I was a prize hoggart at the fair. I soaked up all the praise. I met hill farmers and relations and the pints kept coming. Soon enough a sing-song started and through the fog of smoke an old farmer stood up to sing. He wore a pig cap, shiny with the dirt and a blue pullover with loose threads that looked like it snagged too much barbed wire. He sang the Galty Mountain Boy, a great Tipperary song, much to my father's disgust. He always saw red when he heard that song and he made a beeline for the singer as soon as it finished. That song isn't right, he says to the old man, who seemed shocked at my father's intervention. My father proceeded to point out the faults with the song and quoted the lyrics back to the bewildered singer. I joined the flying columns in 19 and 16, he said, and continued. Arrested by free staters and sentenced for to die. Don't you see what's wrong now, my father asked. The old man was looking left and right, seeking rescue but my father had a hand either side of him, pinning him to the bar. My father explained that the flying column was disbanded after the War of Independence and didn't take part in the Civil War. So there was no flying column to be arrested by free staters, now was there? He says to the man, who I'm sure regretted ever standing up to sing. That was when John Ahern intervened. That's enough now, Joseph, he said to my father. And in the most unexpected way, he slapped my father's face. I seemed to be the only one shocked by John's actions. Everybody else just carried on singing, as if this was a regular occurrence. The next thing I know, John had me steadying up my father, and both of us heading for the door. Mind yourself over there in the big apple, young fella, he said. 
shaking my hand and quietly slipping me a twenty-pound note. He winked and said, Take him home now, he's had enough. And I wondered if this was a normal occurrence. I looked at my father, whose eyelids were dropping like heavy shutters, his face beginning to redden on one side from the slap. I thanked John, acknowledging the twenty pounds. I nodded to the Galty Mountain boy singer, who was seeking sanctuary behind a pint of stout, while keeping a cautious eye on my father. I said my goodbyes and laughed at the madness of the day. I walked Daddy home. We held on to each other like a couple of wounded soldiers, swaying through the streets of Clonmel. I got him home in one piece, despite him losing his shoe as we crossed Queen Street. As I worked on construction sites in New York City, I often thought back to that day's drinking we had and how at home I'd felt in Cooney's pub and the peculiarity of John Hearn's bar management. It was the last time I drank with my father, but the first time I realised I loved him. I joined the flying column in nineteen and sixteen. In Carcuachan, Milan, in Tipperary. I was walking down Camden Street in Dublin one warm summer's evening, close to midnight. It was 2010. I was staying close to the buildings and needed to step out a little in order to avoid tripping on something sticking out of one of the shop doorways. As I did so, I looked into the doorway and saw a man wrapped in a sleeping bag. Our eyes met. He was rolling a joint. Hi, I said. You like that stuff? He smiled and gestured me an invitation to join him in smoking it. There was a piece of cardboard on the ground as a mat. He gave it a wipe and invited me to join him on it. I did while making it clear that I would not partake in the smoking. Apart from the sleeping bag and the cardboard mat, the only other thing in the space was a half-full bottle of water. He told me his name was John, and I told him my name, Tess. I suppose on hearing my accent, he said he was from the West, and I shared that I too am from the West and still live there. He asked me my age, and when I told him, he said, I'm ten years younger than you. You look well for your age. I told him he didn't look bad for his age either. Both of us clearly passed our prime. I asked him why he was sleeping in a shop doorway. Was it that he didn't have a bed to go to? He assured me that he had a place to sleep and did so on wet and cold nights. But on a nice night like this, he'd prefer to sleep outdoors under the moon and stars. He suggested I lean back against the door and look up at the night sky above the city. Just like in the West, he said. For some minutes we sat there silently absorbed in the night sky. All this time people were walking past us in the street, chatting with each other or looking down at the pavement, oblivious to the wonder of the sky above them. Can you sing, he suddenly asked. No, can you, I responded. He took a minute to answer and then he revealed that he was checking if he could remember the words of a song for me, his guest. Then he sang a song I knew well from my childhood, Boule of Vogue. 
He had a fine voice and a lovely natural way of singing. I joined in for the chorus and we laughed together. Then someone John knew came along and stopped to talk. John told him nicely but firmly to move along, saying that he was busy now. When he'd gone, John told me that he didn't want that man joining us because he'd only used the occasion to ask you for money, adding, I wouldn't have you insulted like that. I asked him if he needed anything, such as something to eat, and he assured me that he had everything he needed. He asked me why I was in Dublin and for how long. I told him I was up for a funeral, the afters of which was happening in the pub up the street. Having offered me his condolences, he wondered what my relationship with the deceased was. I told him it was a friend, Mick Lally, of Glenrow fame. Ah, Mick, Miley, he said. I heard that on the street a few days ago. He reminisced a little about Mick, Miley and the glory days of Glenrow. Sure didn't we grow up with him, he finished up. He once again offered me a drag of his joint, this time to the memory of Mick, Miley. I declined, saying that I had been drinking whiskey in the pub as my farewell to Mick. I wouldn't mind having a whiskey in memory of Mick, he said, although I don't drink much. So I offered to go to the pub and see if I could get a whiskey for him. He said goodbye to me and thanked me for having visited him. I got two whiskies in the pub and returned to John as promised. He was overjoyed by my return, saying that he had not expected me to come back. When I again had settled in beside him, he offered to sing me another song. This time it was one my father taught me out in the wide open fields as a boy. He sang me Dear Old Skibbereen as I sipped my whisky. It's a long song and he had all the words. By the time he finished, I had finished my whisky and told him I should be getting back to the pub as my husband would be wondering where I was. We wished each other all the best and both of us said how much we had enjoyed our visit together. There's an American writer, Virginia Satir, who talks about making contact. She says you feel it. You know, when you have made contact with another human being, you feel energised, you feel alive. That's how I felt as I said goodbye to John. I hope he did too. I left him to the company of the moon and the stars. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw my letter printed in issue 58 of Knowledge. The year was 1962 and I was 12 years old. Knowledge, according to its London-based publishers, was the colour magazine which grows into an encyclopaedia. I'd been collecting it for a year, gathering the weekly issues into binders 12 at a time. 
every instalment featured a diverse range of subjects, all illustrated by hand-painted artwork. Of late, an insert was included with the magazine, allowing readers to comment on subjects that had appeared in it. It was this new section I was flicking through in Moore's newsagents. Look, I said, placing it on the counter for the shop assistants Stella and Joan to see. My article on Trim Castle. They leaned over, heads together. And you wrote it yourself, said Joan. I nodded proudly. Well done, said Stella. I left the newsagents walking on air. I'd lived part of my childhood across the road from Trim Castle and spent many a summer's afternoon climbing its crumbling staircases and high turrets. What prompted me to write to knowledge was a feature on Norman castles which didn't mention any of the ones they'd built in Ireland. Seeing my essay in print was not only a thrill in itself, but it instantly boosted an ambition I had to create my own encyclopaedia. I'd probably mentioned this notion to Stella and Joan, who always seemed to have time to chat to me about what I was up to. They also liked to quiz me on the latest pop records I was hearing on Radio Luxembourg and how I was getting on with the guitar I was learning to play. In truth, I was finding the pop scene a bit samey, with artists like Elvis Presley and Cliff Richard dominating the top 20. And though I was an admirer of the Gibson acoustic guitar playing of the Everly Brothers and the Stratocaster strumming of the late Buddy Holly, in my efforts to play the instrument, I was starting to listen to folk artists like Joan Baez and the Clancy Brothers. Their material was easy to sing and play along with, which was how I learned songs. I'd been thinking I might make more progress if I could get my hands on a device called a capodastro, or capo for short. When positioned on different frets along the neck of the guitar, it would raise the pitch and allow me to sing in various keys using the limited number of chords I'd mastered so far. Capos came in different forms, but to get a more expensive lever-operated version, I'd need to save up my pocket money, then get a lift to Dublin and find my way to McCullough Piggott's. But now that I was a published writer, I would concentrate on creating an encyclopedia of random things that interested me. I'd already started work on it, devoting a page to the digestive system of a cow for some reason naming its many parts and using watercolours to illustrate them. I intended my next project to be a set of luridly coloured scenes from Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, which I'd recently read. I felt that poster paints would be the best medium for this, but I didn't have any. I would have to buy them in Dublin too, probably in Eason's. A couple of days later, I came home from school to be told by my mother that a letter had arrived from England addressed to Master Pat Dunn. When I opened it, the word knowledge jumped out at me from the top of the page. The typed letter was signed by a Caroline Curry who thanked me for my article, which, as she wrote, you will have noticed has already been published in Knowledge Number 58 
and then a surprise. I am enclosing herewith a postal order for five shillings with our best wishes. I was overjoyed. Five shillings, five pounds in today's money, was just about what I needed to buy either the lever-operated capo or a good set of poster paints. A trip to Dublin was definitely on the cards. A few months later, not long after I'd started secondary school, I heard a catchy new record on Luxembourg by a group from Liverpool. Love Me Do featured a chromatic harmonica which was a familiar instrument on records by artists like Frank Ifield. And the Beatles' harmonies were reminiscent of the Everly Brothers. But there was a fresh, unpolished feel to the song that really appealed to me. And, as I told Stella and Joan and Moores, it was in the key of G, the chords were simple, and I didn't have to use my new capo to play along with it. I first heard the name Anne Frank, or Anne Frank, as we say in Dutch, when I was five or six years old, in my parents' house in the dunes of Bergen aan Zee, a small, isolated village on Holland's windswept North Sea coast. We were sitting in the living room on a quiet afternoon, and for some reason I remember that my mother was talking about varnishing the floorboards in a deep purple colour, when the doorbell rang. My father answered the door and brought in a tall and somewhat sombre-looking stranger. I had no idea who he was, but later I was told that it was a man called Otto Frank, who had come all the way from Switzerland to visit us. He went with my father to his study. Sometime later they emerged and my father was crying, I'd never seen him cry before, so it made a strong and confusing impression on me. Mr. Frank had come to visit my father to give him some letters and papers. They related to my father's sister, my aunt, Sar. I knew that she had been murdered in a German concentration camp, but my parents rarely talked about these matters or her as they thought my sister and I were too young to fully understand the tragedies that had taken place in our family. From the adults' conversation, I learned that my aunt Sire had known Mr. Frank's daughter, Anne, in the concentration camp of Bergen-Belsen, where they had both died within days of each other. That's how Anne Frank came into my life. It was years later that I read her diary, written in my native language, Dutch. But I knew she had been born in Germany and had come to Holland with her family 
fleeing the Nazi regime. Like many of the Dutch writers and intellectuals of his generation, my father, the poet Maurits Mock, spoke fluent and correct German. Whenever I ventured a sloppy sentence or made a grammatical mistake in the language, he worshipped. A tortured frown would appear on his large brow. How painful it must have been that the clipped language of his family's murderers was the same as the one he had learned to admire and love as an innocent Dutch teenager. We never spoke about it. I read the beautiful leather-bound German books by Heine, Goethe, Schiller and many others in our little black and gold painted library. I loved those books with their gothic script and I loved the smile on my father's face when he discovered our shared joy in the German language. When I came to read Anne Frank's diary, I already understood where she had decided to write in Dutch, the language of the country where she was given refuge and grew up and where eventually, as the world knows, she would go into hiding in an annex behind a house on the Prinsengracht. Then they were betrayed and taken off to the transit camp of Westerbork, like my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, my cousins, all the members of my family, ranging from toddlers to pensioners. After spending a short period there, they were loaded onto the trains heading east to the extermination camps. None of them ever came back. After the war, everyone, including my parents, struggled to get back to life as normal, as if that was possible. Only in his very old age did my father open up about those closest to him, who had been betrayed by their fellow citizens and then murdered in the camps, just like the people who betrayed Anna Frank's place of hiding. A new book has appeared recently, which seems to shed new light, after all this time, on the identity of her betrayer. But in Amsterdam, there are few secrets. There was so much unspoken, but everyone knew what had happened. Everyone knew who had betrayed whom. Already as children we understood that there were shops you didn't set foot in, restaurants you didn't eat in, Families you avoided, people you didn't speak to. It was rarely talked about directly, but somehow we knew. Only once, as a child, did I see my father's anger. We were driving past a busy restaurant, one of the best known in Amsterdam, with the owner's name in fat gold letters on the window. And time stood still. I knew that these were the people who had told the police about my aunt Sire's hiding place. These people were, so to see, still doing well. In Amsterdam, the traffic is dense, and we sit in the car looking at that restaurant. 
We see eager people in front of their big plates of food. We were all quiet, waiting for the traffic lights to change, the rain to stop, the car to move on, when my father's rage comes out of nowhere. He shakes a white-knuckled fist at the overlit restaurant and shouts through the open car window, Informers! My mother hoped for the best. My mother would pause in her sweeping and lean on the brush to listen when Bridie Gallagher's voice trilled from the wireless, her sentimental lilt filling the kitchen with moonlight in Mayo. My mother sang along with the same musing air I noticed when, twice a year, the good tea set was taken from the dresser. Bone china delf, white, rimmed with red roses to be washed in suds. Thirty pieces, all intact. Something entire and unbroken in her unlikely possession. Tableware preserved for some elusive best occasion. She was all set for some vague beyond-the-horizon possibility of a visitor. A capable hostess, ready to entertain that same exotic someone who'd sleep between the flannelette sheets still in cellophane in the trunk in the loft, with a candlewick bedspread ridged with roses, saved for with endless books of green shield stamps, her epic commitment to thrift. We too must have hoped for this best time when someone connected to us would pass triumphant and grand through our door. Someone you couldn't expect to drink from a mug or tighten themselves into a ball for heat under a pile of old coats on the bed. Just a year ago today, I left old Erin's Isle. My heart was throbbing in the soft light of my colleague's smile. In all my dreams, I seem to hear her sweet voice. In the last few years, I've lived in hotels, friends' houses and a homeless shelter here in Ireland. I have seen things in Ireland from a few perspectives and met people from many walks of Irish life. Here are two examples, one good, one not so good, but in reverse order so we end on a happy note. 
This first story is from 2015. It was raining, pouring. Most people were either snoring or preparing to try. I was in a town in the west of the country, but had nowhere dry to sleep for the night. I walked down a path from the main town until I saw a large house that was surrounded by a new and expensive looking grey wall. The property had a couple of outbuildings that I thought were probably for cars or storage, garden equipment or similar. The main gate wasn't locked, so I sleekly nudged my way through it and walked up the path to the furthest outbuilding from the house. Unfortunately, the door to the outbuilding was locked, so I put down my bag and sat under the shelter of the door overhang. I had been relaxing for a few minutes, as best as I could after a long day travelling, mostly on foot, when the front door of the house opened and a man with a dog on a leash approached me. Now, I understand how this person had no idea if I was a friend or foe. All he knew was I was an intruder to his property. And as he and his animal walked towards me, I said, Hello, I'm sorry for being here, but I just had to get some shelter from the rain. I'm on my way to Mayo, but I've nowhere to stay for the night. I'm sorry for disturbing you, I'll leave. What, dear listener, would you have done if you were in this man's position? Anyway, he told me to leave immediately or he would let the dog loose. So off I went into the cold, wet night. I walked back to the main street, huddled in the doorway, and wrote this poem. I'm nobody and I'm nothing. Tonight I am unseen. Tomorrow I'll be nowhere and your conscience will be clean. I found my way to my late mother's birthplace in Mayo the following day. She had died when I was a teenager, but every few years I tried to get back to Ballinar where she grew up and spend some time in the places she used to know. My second tale is more recent. Although not a religious man, I was rescued from the streets by the St Vincent de Paul in Wexford. They never asked if I was a believer or not, which was a relief for me. I was given a room and meals in their town centre men's shelter, room 22. The men were mostly rougher and tougher than me. Although brought up on a Manchester council estate, I was lucky to have had Irish parents that made sure I was educated and wise to the world, not just to the street. Our house was full of books and we were encouraged to read them. The St Vincent de Paul looked after me and within a few weeks found me a place of my own, a small flat to live in, to write and paint in, to laugh and cry in. I'm still here, and I wrote this poem. I didn't die yet, so you needn't cry yet. I'm so happy on my own. Let the spring fly into summer's high. Let our winter be alone. On this morning's programme, we heard Drinking With My Father. That was by Joe Whelan. We also had Tess Hughes' The Night Visit. Pat Dunn brought us Life Before Love Me Do. You also heard The Betrayal of Anne Frank. That was by Judith Mock. My Mother Hoped for the Best was a poem by Margaret Galvin. And Kevin Marinan brought us a tale of two stories. Music this morning included The Galti Mountain Boy, sung by Christy Moore. You also had Bula Vogue played on concertina by Noel Hill. And in there, obviously enough, Love Me Do by The Beatles. Chopin's Nocturne in C-sharp minor was played by Hung Hwa Chung on violin with Philip Maul on piano. And Bridie Gallagher brought us Moonlight in Mayo.
Judith Mock's radio play Confinements is tonight's drama on one as well at eight o'clock here on RTE Radio 1, while her memoir The State of Dark is published by Lilliput Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.